from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. And so it wasn't that they were trying to get into classrooms with white students, they were trying to get into classrooms where there was a law school. The small details of how far the state went to preserve um, segregation in, in higher education, it's, it was, it, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I you know, am not often shocked, but a lot of it was and shocking. It sounds like there wasn't even a precedent as far as the state of Missouri went. This was just going to have to be individual people suing over every single program. Is that is that right there? That is right. I'm Sarah Fenske. In America, we talk a lot about the desegregation and the ongoing de facto segregation of the nation's public schools. But we don't talk much at all about how the same battles took place in higher education in the South, including Missouri. And we don't talk about how perniciously the segregation that flourished in America's institutions of higher learning still persists today. That's the focus of Atlantic staff writer Adam Harris's new book. It's called The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. And he joins us today to talk about it. Adam Harris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So there's so much in this book, and there was so much that was new to me. But I want to start by talking about a case that happened here in Missouri and went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Can you tell us just a bit about who was Lloyd Gaines and what he was fighting for? Yeah, so so Lloyd Gaines was a black student. Um, he, he grew up, uh, well, he was born in Water Valley, Mississippi, and then migrated up to, to Missouri alongside his family. And, you know, he... he performed well in high school, um, went on to, to Harris-Stowe College, and then ultimately went to um, to Lincoln University of Missouri. And uh, after after finishing college, he, he, he wanted to become a lawyer. And mm-hmm. and so he he kind of looks around at the law school at his at his options and realizes that there is no law school that he can attend in the state of Missouri. Meanwhile, you know, he, he wants to he wants to practice law in Missouri. His family lives in Missouri. And so he wants to study law in the state because, you know, what better way to learn, you know, the, the practice and the laws of the state than by studying law in the state. And, 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 and Adam, was not that when you students. say there was no law school that he could attend in the state, this had nothing to do with his grades or his qualifications. Mm-hmm. No, yes, he was supremely qualified to attend law school, but um, the University of Missouri did not accept black students into their graduate programs, and there was no law school for black students, um, even though you know they were supposed to be separate but equal. There was no separate option for black students in the state. Hmm. And this was even in the 1930s. Yes, yes. Okay. So, so we're a couple of decades after um, Plessy v. Ferguson establishes separate the idea of separate but equal and kind of codifies it. But even still, you didn't have at the at the very root, right? The heart of separate but equal is to have a separate option, and they didn't even have that separate option for black students. Mm-hmm. So he sued. 
Yes. So alongside the NAACP, um, they sue the state of Missouri, saying that, you know, to send a student out of state, a lot of states practice this um, this sort of scheme where they would send black students out of state if they needed graduate education rather than educating them in the state. And so um, yeah, at a very fundamental level, that that flew in the face of, of what states were trying to uphold in their separate but equal regimes. And so they sued to, to get him um, admitted into into law school at the University of Missouri. Okay. And so he won this case, kind of. What did the court rule when they looked at this case? So when the court ultimately gets up to the Supreme Court and they ultimately rule that, hey, you know, look, Missouri, if you would like to continue to propagate this sort of lie of separate but equal, then at the very root, you at least need to have a separate option for black students. Um and it's, it's not that, you know, he needed to be admitted to the University of Missouri. That wasn't what they were arguing. They were arguing that if you are claiming that you have a separate but equal system, then black students should at the very least be able to attend the separate institution. Um, meanwhile, the state was arguing, you know, it would be a, a, a disservice to, to black people throughout the state if he were to be admitted to the University of Missouri. Wow. So, I mean, just thinking about these arguments, they both sound crazy today. But the idea was then they're supposed to set up a, a separate law school for this one guy and maybe other people who followed. Yes, yes. At the very heart of it, that was the responsibility of the state. Set up a, um, a separate law school for, for Lloyd Gaines. So this is kind of a victory. I keep saying kind of because this <laughs> seems like no victory, but this is kind of a victory here. I mean, this said that these, these kind of programs where they were just paying to ship people out of state, this wasn't enough anymore. Yes, yeah, and and so oftentimes the courts would lean back on the Fourteenth Amendment um, and, and and you know equal opportunity for for black students to say that it's it's no way offering equal opportunity to say that you have to leave the state in order to attain a graduate education, and so. You know, it, it is a victory, but, you know, the, the NAACP was sort of using these cases as a way to, to drive at that lie of separate but equal. At first to say that, you know, you haven't created a separate program. And then if the state was to, to rush a separate program into existence in, you know, a month, two months, to say that that program is going to be equal to, you know, the University of Missouri's law school that had been open for, for decades at that point, just, you know, there was a, a real flaw in that logic. And so they were really poking at the flaw in the logic of separate but equal. So Lloyd Gaines, there ended up being such a tragic re resolution to this case, as, as you discuss in this book. Basically, he just disappeared. And it, it's hard not to think that, that he was a victim of foul play. But what was shocking, and what I didn't know before reading your book, is that just after this, a black woman, this is named Lucille Bluford, she applied to the University of Missouri's journalism program, and she was turned down because she was black. So out of this case that goes up to the Supreme Court, it sounds like there wasn't even a precedent as far as the state of Missouri went. This was just going to have to be individual people suing over every single program. Is that is that right there? That is right. The way that the state of Missouri interpreted this was to say that, you know, this wasn't, um, you know, a case that was an end-all be-all. This wasn't, you know, they have to admit every black student. They have to create a law school and a journalism program and a veterinary science program. 
um, they were saying that we can just create this this law school and then, you know, everyone else is going to have to subsequently sue. And so Lucille Bluford applies. Um, uh, they are, the, the state says, okay, we will create a journalism program for her at Lincoln University and the counsel for the NAACP, um, Thurgood Marshall, who, who um, you know, ultimately ended up representing Donald Murray in the University of Maryland case and, of course, becomes this fantastic Supreme Court justice. Um says, I cannot see for the life of me how Lincoln University can establish a school of journalism after September 30th equal to the school of journalism at the University of Missouri when the University of Missouri is already open, right? So so it's pointing at that logic of you are trying to rush a school into existence and say that it is equal to this school that has, you know, benefited from, you know, years of existence, years of figuring out how to do things and the funding that has come alongside You know, and even beyond the idea of just starting a university from scratch, which just seems crazy, I was struck in this book by how far some of these universities went to keep black students separated from white students, even after they let the black students in. Like you describe things like they would have people on separate schedules or even in one case where they put a railing up. In the classroom. I mean, that's the point where my jaw just dropped to the floor. When you were doing this research, were, were you just shocked by some of these details you uncovered? Yeah, I, I was, and right, I, I, there were there were pieces of me that going into it, I understood um, the the extent to which uh, states and the federal government had gone to to maintain um, an, an equitable higher education system. But you know, to read you know about a student who all of his classes have to be in the basement at different times than other students, to read about. Um, you know, I'd seen the picture of George McLaurin basically sitting out in, in the anteroom, sitting out in the hallway, um, where Thurgood Marshall says that, you know, that man, that man is peeking into the classroom. And then once he's admitted into the classroom, right, they actually put a literal rail up into the in, in the class. And so the granularity um, and like the, 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 the small details of how far the state went to preserve um, segregation in, in higher education, which it was, it, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I you know, am not often shocked, but a lot of it was shocking. So you write about all these cases that kind of chipped away at this idea of separate but equal. As you say, there was never equal to any of this. What finally ended up being the death knell for the idea that states could get away with this kind of thing? So, you know, as they, you know, as states and, and you know, the NAACP and, and plaintiffs continued suing. So, you know, it was the, the Gaines case was really the first, um, the first foray. And then you have um, Ada Louise Sipple Fisher's case in Oklahoma and the George McLaurin case in Oklahoma and the Sweat case in Oklahoma and, and Texas, where, where they're really saying, like, listen, you're, you're arguing for separate but equal, but you have not created separate programs. And so eventually it becomes a sort of cascade where um, the, the NAACP sues and states are forced to admit black students. And after a certain point, you know, you, you end up getting to the Brown v. Board of Education case where, you know, they've they've. You know, poked at the lie of separate. They've now poked at the lie of equal, right? In Ada Louise Simple Fisher's case, they raced the law school into existence in five days from the Supreme Court's um, decision. And so once you get to Brown v. Board of Education, it, it, it's a little bit more straightforward to say that, you know, separate um, is is never equal. And so that ultimately, you know, these cases really set the groundwork for that Brown versus Board of Education case. So even though we think about that being about grade schools, high schools, that ended up applying to colleges. That's finally what forced them to do this. 
Yes. And, and so some institutions, of course, did not um, ultimately uh, end up desegregating after after Brown v. Board. Right. It was a um, it ended up being a lengthy process. Right. Um, I, I did a series actually um, unrelated to the book, but actually you know, about the people. Um, who ended up desegregating all of these school districts, all of these um, universities across the country, mm-hmm. right? You had the bloody battles in, in Mississippi. You had kind of violent, tense um, interactions in Alabama, right? This was, it wasn't just like, you know, the case happens and everything is fine. It was it was really a struggle after, after that case. So this is definitely a side note, but you've done so much research on this. And, and something I was fascinated by that, that you kind of just mentioned in this book mm-hmm. is that many of these people who were kind of the quote unquote guinea pigs, as you called them, who went forward in these lawsuits and, and pushed um, to be admitted, you noted that white newspaper men at the time didn't necessarily always give them a fair shake. What struck you looking back on some of the contemporaneous coverage uh, that you read while working on this? You know, it was it was really interesting, the tenor that, you know, the black newspapers would, would to which the black newspapers like the Oklahoma Dispatch and other um, places would cover these stories as, as you know, opposed to, um, you know, some of the white newspapers of the time. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there is a lot to, especially in journalism, right, as, as a reporter, one of the things that I often think about is the way that my coverage um, is, is being reflected, like the biases that are being reflected. And they are quite clear um, in, in the coverage of these cases, right, saying that, oh, this is just another um, attempt to to you know, get black students in the classrooms with white students when really they were fi- fighting for equality. And, and you know, the, the thing about um, the way that higher education is financed is that the institutions with more black students have fewer resources and the institutions that, you know, historically were segregated have have a glut of resources. And and so it's it's almost that the, the resources are following the, the white students. So it wasn't that they were trying to get into classrooms with white students. They were trying to get into classrooms where there was a law school, right? There was not a law school at Lincoln University, but there was a law school at Missouri. There was not a law school at Langston University, but there was a law school at the University of Oklahoma. And so they were just seeking that sort of equal opportunity and the funding that came along with it. And, and the newspaper coverage in some of these papers, it sounds like they treated this more as like a stunt or this was something that, uh, you know, they just didn't really frame it in the way that we would frame it today. No, absolutely not. Yeah. And, and this is even kind of tracing back historically. They any time you are thinking about advancement, um, whether that's kind of civil rights advancement, um, it has historically been framed as, you know, this is a stunt, this is a ploy, um, this is the NAACP just trying to get headlines, this is there. And and it was never as um, these people are, are fighting for equality. And so it was, it was always very interesting reading things, um, you know, reading the crisis and the coverage in, in the NAACP's um, magazine, um, as opposed to some of the local papers, because the tenor of the coverage in the way that they framed the stories, which is completely different. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation, hopefully get into some of that set them right part. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.
And now back to our conversation. Our guest today is Adam Harris. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's the author of The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal, and How to Set Them Right. And Adam, in this book, this is not just a book about history. This also takes us up to the present tense. And I feel like much less attention than some of these landmark cases that we've discussed has been paid to the lawsuits filed by historically black colleges and universities against states for the unequal funding that goes on there. Uh, what is the gist of their argument? So the, there are a couple of different arguments that HBCUs make, right? One is kind of pointing to the historical underfunding of the institution. Um, two, you know, they think about things like uh, unnecessary program duplication, right? It ends up getting kind of wonky, but at, at a very... Um, at a very real level, it's that states have not adequately provided the resources for these institutions to be successful and oftentimes have, you know, legitimately built the institutions out of money that they're owed. And yet the institutions have been able to punch above their weight and, you know, have you know, HBCUs produce something like 25% of black STEM graduates, 50% of black lawyers and doctors, 80% of black judges. And still, that's, that's in spite of years of unequal funding. And so, you know, HBCUs are really fighting to recoup some of that um, un- un- inequitable funding and, and that funding that they were really um, built out of. So you touched briefly on just what an important role these universities play, but I feel like there might be some listeners who are still skeptical. You know, we have Brown versus Board of Education. Now black students under the law have to have access to the main campuses. Why is it so important that we continue to fund these universities that previously existed to serve these populations that that were being kept out? Yeah. So, so even though HBCUs don't have a, a you know monopoly on uh, black education anymore, right? They're still, um, as I mentioned, kind of punching above their weights. A place like North Carolina A and T, right? It's the third highest research producing institution in the state of North Carolina. Public research producing institution in the state of North Carolina. Um, you know, when they switched over to becoming a high research producing activity institution, they didn't receive the they didn't receive any money to make that jump. When two predominantly white institutions did the same thing just a couple of years. Years later, they received ten million dollars a piece, and this is just in the early two thousands. Hmm. So, so going going back, right? These these institutions still do outsized work in educating black students in Oklahoma, right? One of the states that precipitated the the push towards Brown versus Board of Education. Um, at Langston University, where Ada Louise Sipple Fisher was a student, they enroll, uh, there are almost more black students at that one institution than there are at the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University combined, um, right? They, they have a student body of something like 1900s, and there are more black t- black students in that student body than there are the University of Oklahoma student body, which has more than 20,000 students. And so when you think about the role that these institutions are still playing, um, they're still playing that, that very important role of educating students to other institutions institutions are not. And, and so you make this great case that um, states are not funding these equally. You have example after example in this book. That seems like a problem for the federal government then, based on the argument you're making. What kind of tools do they have to say, hey, you know, this is educating a large number of black students and, and it's not getting the funding per pupil that's nearly equivalent to what's going in at other places? 
Yeah, I think it's it's been interesting the way that there's there's traditionally been an argument that well, it's not the federal government's responsibility to to make amends for um, the way that state higher education systems are set up. But but really, if you go back to the roots of the state higher education system, it was really given its biggest injection of funding from the federal government from the beginning. Hmm. And so you know, you think about all of the major plays that the federal government has made in higher education, whether that's the Morrill Act, the Second Morrill Act, um, um, the GI Bill. Um, you think about all of these. Things Things that really, in some ways, kind of locked black students into inequitable systems or locked black students out of those systems. Um, the federal government has a responsibility to make amends for that, right? Public policy created the issues that we're facing today, and it's, it's public policy's responsibility to fix it. And so over the last year, um, you know, HBCUs have received sizable injections of funds from the federal government. Um, the across a couple of programs, um, COVID relief programs, they've basically tripled the investment from the federal government that they would receive in a typical year. But, you know, one a one-time injection of funds doesn't, you know, um, kind of make up for that legacy of, of underfunding, right? Um, you can't really fix uh, a more than a century problem in one year um, unless that investment is sizable. And, and oftentimes the numbers, you know, they, they end up with, oh, this is, we're going to be in the millions, but really we should, we should start the conversation in the billions. And you're saying because of this sort of chronic underfunding that many of these historically black colleges and universities are in trouble today. And, and these, you know, for the most part, these are not private. These are state institutions. What does the landscape look like for some of these that aren't as well known, aren't as prominent as, as the big ones we think about? Yeah. So, so, you know, even my own institution. So I went to Alabama A&M University in Huntsville. Um, and, and, you know, over the last year, we've seen, you know, these these large donations to HBCUs. Um, some of them are the largest ever, even if it was just a $5 million donation. It was the largest ever mm. donation that these institutions received. And so, you know, the, the institutions have been fighting for philanthropic funding. They've been fighting for to receive the state funding that they have been shut out of. Tennessee recently did an audit where they found that they had shorted their HBCU by at least $500 million over the last, um, you know, 50 years. And so... Um, they've been fighting for that funding, but it's it's tough, right? You know, when you've had a, a cold for that long, you've had that deferred maintenance for that long. Um, it can it can you know develop into more serious problems, and so there's there's the infrastructure things that need to be fixed on the campus campuses. You know, they want the the money to build up their endowments, um, and so for the institutions that aren't as well known, the institutions that aren't Howard and Hampton and Spelman and, and Morehouse, um, they're really having to fight for funding and and you know, show philanthropists, show the government um, that, that they are worthy of that funding. And, and really, you know, they shouldn't have to continue to make that argument because the proof is, is really kind of in the pudding. So you have a really provocative solution for this. And I feel like our libertarian listeners, our conservative listeners, they might actually be on board for this solution because one of the solutions you're talking about here um, doesn't just involve the federal government or even the states. You're talking about other colleges and universities, ones that have huge in endowments. Make the case here for us today. What would you like to see happen and why? Yeah. So so several institutions over the last several years have been studying their legacies with slavery and segregation, right? So it started with Brown in the early 2000s. You have Harvard who studied it, um, Georgetown, you know, uh, you know, several institutions have, have done these big studies. You know, University of Virginia recently did one where they said Thomas Jefferson couldn't have imagined a University of Virginia without slavery at its core. And so, you know, you think about those institutions and what they developed into. And at the same time that those institutions 
students were locking black students out. Um, and even on the public level, right, the University of Mississippi in the 1860s was saying that we would rather close. The faculty said we would all resign and have the university close and admit a black student. Meanwhile, Alcorn State, which was the university serving black students, was having its budget cut from $50,000 a year to $15,000 a year to $5,500 a year between 1871 and 1876. So you start to see that resource stratification between the institutions that were locking black students out. So maybe those institutions that have those deep ties to slavery, deep ties to, to segregation, um, have a responsibility in this moment to help the institutions that were serving black students and that continue to serve black students in large numbers, right? A place like Auburn University has fewer black students now than it had in 2002. And it's known that this was an issue and that it was one of the most segregated institutions in the state since 1985 when a federal judge said as much on the same day that Bo Jackson won the Heisman as the best college football player in the in the country. And wow. so, you know, um, and so, you know, I, th I think that, you know, those institutions that benefited from slavery and segregation have some responsibility to these the institutions that were serving serving black students when they wouldn't. Well, certainly it feels popular in higher education today to pay lip service to the idea of atonement. I'm wondering how this proposal in your book has, has gone over. <laughs> Are you hearing people <laughs> queuing up, ready to start supporting um, some of these historically black colleges and universities with their own endowments? You know, I, there haven't been, you know, as, as you can imagine, people haven't jumped on board with, with the idea. But it is interesting that the, the conversation has started and it's happening in a, in a pretty robust way where, where people have started thinking about things like, OK, what if, you know, for an institution that can make one billion dollars a year just on its endowment earnings, what if they, you know, gave some of those endowment earnings to a historically black college? And I think that the more that people can start thinking outside of the box to start um, really driving at those higher ideals that higher education professes to, the better off HBCUs will be and the better off the sector will be as a whole, as a, you know, as Ruth Simmons put it to me once, um, the president of, of Prairie View A&M, who used to be the president at Brown University, you know, she said, universities have a responsibility to tell the truth. If they don't tell the truth, then they become another corrupt institution that um, is, is deserving of whatever um, criticism it receives. And so I think that institutions need to own up to that truth. And on top of that, need to, you know, provide tangible um, recompense for that history. Well, I think you make a great argument in this book. I want to really encourage people to check this out for themselves. The book is called The State Must Provide, Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. And Adam, just in our, our final minute here, um, it was interesting to read about your own journey, which you also mentioned in this book. You did go to Alabama A&M University. That is one of these historically black uh, universities here. And it sounds like this was kind of the, the best of times. It was also the worst of times. I mean, you saw these disparities firsthand. It sounds like you're also very happy with what you learned while you were there. You know, I, I was. And, and, you know, my professors at Alabama A&M, I can still talk to them pretty regularly. Um, and they are really they served as mentors. And that's one of the things that has actually been rather consistent through through my research, through my family, who also went to historically black colleges. They would always talk about the professors and how much they cared for students. And so it's 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 always interesting to see this divide between the resources that these institutions are afforded and what they have historically provided and continue to provide for students as a place where they can 
authentically be themselves and and grow into themselves as as people and as scholars. Um, I did some of my best work at reading when I was a student at Alabama A and M, and without that foundation, I don't think that that this well one this book absolutely would not have been possible without that foundation. But mm-hmm. but two, I think it's it's just a really strong base for for students, um, and and the hope would be that, that state lawmakers and federal lawmakers would understand that and see that um, and and make up for that legacy of underfunding. Well, Adam Harris, I want to thank you so much for making the time to join us today and, and for sharing about this book. I learned a lot. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.